Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. The U.S. women will easily win this in a court of public opinion. But in the court of law, it could get interesting, if it ever even gets that far, because this shouldn't go to trial. But this does bring up some interesting and fundamental questions. Do the men and women of the United States national team perform the same job, and does that job require equal skill, effort, and responsibilities? Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. We look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking the U.S. Women's National Team latest lawsuit. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment, and Mossy's going to talk about Zinedine Zidane's power play. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment with Atlanta United and Frank DeBoer's reality check and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you this Monday morning? I am good. I am very happy to have Adnan Syed back in my life. Oh, here we go. So I watched a bunch of soccer this week, and as, as you did too, as many of our listeners did uh, and viewers did, but uh, th- we also watch, we are addicted to documentary uh, film and, and television. So explain to the viewer uh, and the listener what you're talking about here. So years ago, there was a... Uh, podcast called Serial, which was a- Still exists. Yeah, they, she's gone on to do Sarah Koenig, different seasons of it, but season one was a phenomenon, yep. and it centered on this case in uh, Baltimore in the late 90s in which a 17-year-old, Adnan Syed, was uh, accused and ultimately convicted of murdering his girlfriend, and he was sentenced to life in prison. He's still in jail now, and she- when it investigated the case, yeah, and, 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 and I, I, I was there along with you too. So uh, now they, they now HBO has, has gotten so now, the rights, and now there's a whole HBO thing, right? Correct. So now HBO is going to do a four-part documentary on this case, and and part one aired last night. I have yet to see it, but I'm going to see it, which means that I have to now do the uh, trial subscription once again because I did it for Finding Neverland, and then I canceled it, and now evidently I have to go see this. Is there anything new? Because I, I I listen to the podcast. Is there anything new? Because you want something like this to be new, right? Yeah. Yeah, to, to justify this endeavor, uh, they have to be able to advance the story or to point out things that weren't in the podcast. And and through one episode, I'm a little leery. I'm getting a season two making of murder vibe, vibe yeah. off this, that it's not going to advance the story as much as we, we'd like. But yeah. still, it was compelling well, to so watch. You need to understand the world in which we live <laughs> and the world in which we uh, work, okay? If our little podcast, as great as it was, were to suddenly appear on HBO, we have to recognize that... There's only a sliver of people that have actually listened to it in the same way that it's a much bigger sliver that have listened to this podcast. And so HBO, you're getting a whole new audience, time spent viewing, my friend. It's why it's why when you watch me or others uh, do a uh, like a, a, a month long World Cup type of production, it's why you will see me at times say the same things because and you'll say, well, why is Alexi saying the same things over and over again? Well, because you are a minority in that you are listening and watching day in and day out. But we are trying to get as many people into the as possible, and we recognize that not everybody is the uh, documentary dorks that we are and has listened to it from a podcast perspective. It was cool to put faces to some of the names. That uh, is, yeah. 
Yeah, my man Jay is. Uh, is it done? Is it a one part thing or no? Is no, it two- four part thing, and and just the one part aired last. Oh, it's just so started. Now. Three more to go. Yeah, so you can easily catch up. Just uh, watch no, part I want one this week. You know, I, I don't watch oh, anything until it's it, until it's finite. It's done. It's over, and then I will binge it. So while it's in progress, you just keep letting me know what's going on. Fair enough. I will keep watching. You will binge it eventually, and then we'll discuss it when it's all over. Perfect. That yeah. sounds like a plan, my friend. All right, Mossy. Enough of this. Uh, ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pot off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. The U.S. Women's National Team filed a lawsuit against the United States Soccer Federation alleging institutionalized gender discrimination, which they say has resulted in the women consistently making less money and experiencing worse conditions than their male counterparts. They're demanding pay equity and equal treatment. The U.S. women will easily win this in a court of public opinion. But in the court of law, it could get interesting, if it ever even gets that far, because this shouldn't go to trial. This is about money, and this will be settled with money. The U.S. women understand their leverage, and they've always been very smart about how and when they wield their power. But this does bring up some interesting and fundamental questions. Do the men and women of the United States national team perform the same job, and does that job require equal skill, effort, and responsibilities? Go ahead. Answer. If you say yes, the job is the same, then the two teams and players should be interchangeable. If you say no, the jobs are different, then inequities relative to either side could exist. There's also a good chance you'll be called sexist. But remember, the U.S. women's and men's national teams have separate unions and have separate collective bargaining agreements. Over the years, the men and women have wanted, negotiated, and voluntarily agreed upon very different compensation and treatment structures that reflect their unique needs. Now, I hope this lawsuit gets settled, and I hope the U.S. women get everything they want and more. They deserve it. They deserve it because the U.S. women's national team players are the best in the world at their job. All right, Mossy, that's my State of the Union. Before I let you uh, have edit here, a couple of things. Number one, unless something has changed, neither one of us are lawyers, right? Correct. Okay, so that's, (laughs) for the record, uh, Your Honor, neither one of us are lawyers. And two, it's not lost on us that uh, there are two men talking about this right now. I don't think that that precludes us from from talking about it and discussing it and having an opinion about it. Uh, this is something that was front page news, literally front page news in the uh, in the New York Times. And this is something that people are talking about and people that we don't even have an association or affiliation with soccer. So this is this was done by design. As I said, the women are very, very smart and strategic as to when they make comments and when they do something big like this. Uh, and it was designed for the mass maximum impact. And I think that they got it. And something we're going to be talking about as we lead up into this summer with the Women's World Cup. And it's fascinating as to how this is going to uh, play out. All right. Thoughts about uh, what I said and or the, uh, you know, the, uh, the situation in general? Well, in terms of the money, uh, reading all the different articles, there's a difference between equal pay and equitable pay. Right. Equal means literally the same amount. Equitable is more of a vague legal term that means fair. You get into sort of proportion of revenue and things like that. And it sounds like what they're after is equitable pay which does leave some room for them to negotiate an, incre- an increase from what they get now, but not necessarily the same as the men. So we'll have to see how that plays out. The other element of this that you mentioned is sort of the working conditions. And I have to admit, I do find that stuff off-putting when you read that the men fly That's, on yeah. charter flights and the women fly commercial, the men stay at nicer hotels. 
the Barcelona uh, Barcelona got in hot water last summer because the men's and women's teams both flew to Los Angeles, and the men were in first class, the women were in coach. And nobody disputes that the Barcelona men generate more money than the women, but even they recognize after the fact that was bad optics, that was a bad look, it was wrong, and we're not going to let it happen again. And I think there's some room there for U.S. soccer as sort of a gesture of goodwill to sort of cut that stuff out because that, that to me, is kind of off-putting. The, the question I asked, and this isn't a, a gotcha question, it's, it's a legitimate question. I think it's maybe more a, a question that's going to be asked in the court if it ever gets to that, is are these jobs the same? the men's national team and the women's national team. Yeah, I, I think they're fundamentally the same. I do have an issue, and again, I know I'm um, walking into a political correctness minefield here. I do have an issue with the women throwing their results in the face of the men because while women's soccer has made a lot of progress when it comes to depth and competitiveness, I don't think it's at the point yet that permits an apples-to-apples comparison. The vast majority of countries around the world devote a lot more resources to men's soccer. You, you answered an Ask Alexi question I think a couple of weeks ago, about why haven't the men won a World Cup yet? And you said, well, bear in mind, we're facing countries that got a 100-year head start on us. Yep. The women don't have to deal with that because women's soccer, everybody started at more or less the same time. And so I, I'm a little bit leery of that argument that, hey, we deserve more money because, look, we, we win and the men don't. I think th that there is sort of an apples to oranges kind of thing there. But if, you know, if we take it to the, the real world, and once again, we're not lawyers, but if we take it to the real world, if you have... You know, two surgeons, a man and a woman, that are doing an operation. Uh, and ultimately, it's the same operation. And you're going to be judged on how successful that operation is. And the woman could uh, go and do the operation that the man did, and the man could go do the operation that the, the woman did. In this case, that, that doesn't apply. And that applies to, to a lot of other things in life when we're talking about a compare and contrast. I, I'm, I'm just really interested, ultimately, in how people... And I don't know if I have have that answer. And I'm not sure the courts are going to have that answer. And maybe the answer ultimately isn't, isn't important. When you, when you get down to you know, the, the collective bargaining agreements, once again, just because you have signed a collective bargaining agreement doesn't preclude, preclude you from uh, continuing to negotiate and continue to fight for rights that you feel that you deserve. Because I know a lot of people say, well, they've signed a collective bargaining agreement. And that's a legitimate and fair argument to say, hey, the women signed a collective bargaining agreement. They agreed to what they agreed to. By the way, this is a collective bargaining agreement that was signed only a, a, a little while ago. So why are you able to go back on that? Well, from a legal perspective, you, you, you certainly can do that. I have talked to plenty of lawyers over the last, uh, over the last uh, few days, people much smarter than me. And I think the general consensus is, as I said in my State of the Union, that ultimately they, this, gets solved, uh, this gets solved with money. But there's so many different things that you said. The, the stuff, people say, well, there's stuff that's not necessarily associated with money. No, everything is associated with money because the, the actual pay, okay, we put that to, the, to one side. And then the other things, the treatment, all of that has a dollar amount that's going to be attached to it, even though it doesn't necessarily directly t uh, you know, con uh, consider when you're talking about money. But all of the, the treatment has a dollar amount. So it does get solved with money. But all of that kind of stuff, the per diem, there's a reason why the per diem isn't in this lawsuit, because in that new CBA, it's possible that the women have a higher per diem than the men. So it goes back and forth, and they are on different schedules when it comes to their CBAs. So when, when we are talking about you know these these things right now, I think it's important that, you know, we look and we say, all right, the NWSL, 
all right, the, uh, the Women's League, that the United States Soccer Federation in part funds and in part supports. What is the monetary value of that? So all of these things are going to be decided. Now, from a, from a, from a playing perspective, a lot of people have asked me, Does, is this a problem three months before the Women's World Cup starts? I don't think so, because these women, and not just these women, but there's generations of women that have had to go through these things and have gone through them and still done their job. And as we mentioned, done their job very, very well, so much so that they are ranked number one, so much so that they are the defending World Cup champions, so much so that they are perennial powers. And they're able to separate these two, the, these two things, the, the, you know, the business and the fighting for the rights that they, uh, that they feel that they deserve and that a lot of people feel that they deserve and the actual performance on the field. And even in the lawsuit, there is a correlation and a recognition, which is why they say, and, and why, you know, I know you take issue with that compare and contrast with the men's. They, they firmly say, we are so good, and that should come into play as we, uh, as we go forward. Do you think that this affects the women's national team as they get ready for the World Cup this summer? No. It's going to be a story we're going to talk about. If anything, it might motivate them. You know, it's funny because I thought about, uh, you know, you guys. I mean, I listened to that great podcast Roger Bennett did on your 1998 World Cup team, and there was a whole episode devoted to the uh, 1995 Copa America and what you guys were dealing with in and around that tournament, which is you were uh, fighting with the Federation over money. And literally in the days leading up to it, it was unclear whether you were even going to take the field for your first game. You guys were on strike. You were just hanging out in Uruguay at the hotel without doing much of anything. Uh, I mean, take me through that. How, how wacky was that whole but, situation? But that's, that was our leverage because we were already on site and we knew that that was something that we were going to have to take it to the, to the brink and then go over if, if, if necessary. And in no way in the public comments, and I do believe even privately, is this a situation for the U.S. women where they say we're not going to play in the World Cup? That's going to happen no matter, uh, no matter what. I think this is, and this is also a long-term play. Keep in mind that if this ever were to come to a jury and, and go to trial, we're talking years from now. But also there's a danger in that because years from now, the situation may have changed. Uh, the disparity that exists right now may have been corrected and changed. The way that we view the national team, the women's national team might have changed. Who knows? Maybe the men go on and win a World Cup and maybe the women are horrible. Uh, so the, the, the reality of, uh, of the current climate that they are using to their advantage right now may change, which is why I think ultimately this thing gets, gets settled. And then, you know, there's, there's the question of, are the women right now, do they have a problem with the Federation? Is there a problem with society and culture in general? Or is there a problem really with the negotiation that happened and what they feel is a bad negotiation that happened? And that happens in life and that happens in business too. Yeah, you mentioned the different uh, structures of the deals they sign. That has to do with the different amount of money they make at club level. You know, the men now are making good money at club sure. level, so they're able to sign a deal with the federation that's m more uh, with bonuses and all that, while the women actually depend on the money they get from U.S. soccer as sort of their income, and so they have to sign a deal that's more structured around, you know, there's more emphasis on the actual salary they receive. So, so yeah, I mean, in the long term for women's soccer, you'd love to see get more traction at club level and, and there'd be like a, a, a league in this country for women's soccer that's actually able to like pay big salaries. And I think that would 
sort of contribute to sort of altering the dynamic here. Uh, it's interesting, this whole issue of revenue, because uh, the Federation, U.S. soccer is always able to fall back on, well, men's soccer is a much bigger money generator right. than women's soccer. And most people believe that, especially when you read articles about how the prize money for the Men's World Cup is 10 times that of the women. But in, in this lawsuit, the women actually try to present numbers to argue that, no, we generate as much revenue as the men. And some people are saying that they're cherry-picking certain sure. years that are advantageous can, to their argument. Yeah. So that's a whole interesting element to this as well. And, and also part of this is that it could turn into a class action and it could turn into, and, and one of the things that they, have, they, that they have included in this is back pay and, you know, reparations or whatever from things that have happened in the past. I don't know how that ultimately gets resolved for both either in terms of figuring out what they they deserved and should have gotten over the years, who that money goes to, all those different things. So there's a, you know, there's a million different questions out here. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. You know, one thing I, not, not one thing, I have multiple things, but one, one of the, the things that I've always talked about and always believed is, and, and I said it in my State of the Union, is that these women are incredibly organized. Uh, they are together. I think they also, while, while this is about business and this is about money, I think that at its core, there is a fundamental belief that they are doing something to better not just women and not just women's sports, but to better society and to, uh, and to better uh, you know all Americans and the decisions that they uh, that they are are making. And they're incredibly smart, as I said, in understanding uh, the power that they have and the leverage that they have individually. Uh, so for some of these stars that have been made that have inc incredible ability to capture hearts and minds out there and then collectively and then timing wise leading into the World Cup this summer with it, where they know they are going to have uh, incredible platforms and a and, and in its, of itself an incredible platform of the World Cup that they can use to further this discourse, to further their argument and ultimately get the things that they want. But I'll be interested to... to to, ha to you know to to hear what people have to say as to you know the fundamental question are the two jobs the same but when you make that argument from a legal standpoint if that if it ever gets to that point i would be so fascinated to see what the legal arguments on both sides would be as to is it separate and if it's not separate then how does that impact this you know, the, this lawsuit and going forward, how is it made equal? Anything else, Mossy? Nope. Well, this is going to be a topic that we continue to talk about. And when we're talking about the, the women's team, they are going to be asked questions. They know this is coming. And the, the other interesting thing before we head out is that how other national teams and other national, team other, uh, national federations are watching this. And once again, these, these women are leaders. These women are leaders not only in our own country, but leaders around the world with the things that they do and the say and, and say and the change that they are able to make because of the power that they have amassed, because of, of the leverage that they have. And to be quite frankly, uh, to be quite frank, because of the impact that they have on a continual basis, but certainly every four years when it comes to the World Cup. We'll see if this res is resolved. We'll see how much uh, or little they do get of what they want. And ultimately, we'll see if this impacts in any way their performance on the field. Because uh, as you said, it might motivate them to say, hey, we got to make sure that we continue to have the fact that we are the best 
at what we do. We are the best at the job that we do. However we define that job or however we, we compare and contrast that job, that we continue to be the best in the world at what we do. And this is our job and we continue to do uh, the things on the field that make the things that we want to do off the field that much easier. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. Listen, Saturday night, I don't want you to miss the biggest pay-per-view fight of the year. Two of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the world put their perfect records on the line. Errol Spence Jr. takes on Mikey Garcia for the World Welterweight Championship live from AT&T Stadium. Spence Jr. versus Garcia, Saturday at 9 Eastern, 6 Pacific, live on pay-per-view. Order now. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. What are you casing for this week, Mossy? My case is simply put, be wary of sequels. Real Madrid have been around for a long time, but you could make a case that the seven-day stretch from February 27th through March 5th was the worst week in their history. They were effectively eliminated from three competitions by falling twice at home to Barcelona and suffering their worst-ever home European defeat at the hands of Ajax. What that week also did was it sealed Santiago Salati's fate. The only question was whether they would get rid of him now or wait until the end of the season. News came down today. Solari is out. He'll be replaced by Zinedine Zidane, and I must say I am shocked. Any manager who is offered the Real Madrid job has to decide what he values more, prestige or stability. On the one hand, Real Madrid is the biggest club in the world. They've won 13 European Cups. Certainly there's an allure to that, but you have to balance it out with the lack of job security and the nuttiness of Florentino Perez. Plus, right now, you're inheriting a squad in transition that may need to be rebuilt. Of all the managers that were mentioned in recent days, Zinedine Zidane is the one that should be the most aware of the potential pitfalls of this job. He left last summer precisely because he foresaw some of the issues that have plagued them this season. And I'm amazed that the only manager in Florentino Perez's entire tenure that was able to leave on his own terms and go out on top would put himself in the line of fire again. This is like somebody robbing a bank, getting away with it, and then deciding, I'm going to try to rob the same bank again. I am fascinated to see how this is going to play out. All right. Oh my goodness! Uh, and and thank you that this news broke before we started to uh, record because usually it happens after. So and it is huge news. It will it will reverberate all around uh, the uh, the soccer world. Okay, uh, my question to you is this: Is this a situation of you know, just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in, or is this I just can't quit you type of situation for Zidane? I think a big part of it was he looked around and he didn't love the options that were out there. It it looks like Solskjaer is going to get the Manchester United job. Uh, He wants no part of Chelsea because as nutty as Real Madrid is, Chelsea are even nuttier. (laughs) And uh, Niko Kovac has kind of righted the ship at Bayern Munich. So maybe he looked at it and said, I don't want to sit out another season. And there's not another great option out there. So that's part of it. The other interesting element to this is I did a Mossy Makes a Case a while back about how uh, Real Madrid are embarking on a massive renovation of their stadium, which they're going to have to pay for themselves. And that's made Florentino Perez leery of spending big on a superstar over the last couple of years. It also contributed to their decision to sell Cristiano Ronaldo. I have to think that Zinedine Zidane only accepted this job because he's been assured that he's going to be able to spend big this summer. And so if Zidane was able to force Florentino Perez to reverse course that gives him a lot of power and all the leverage in this situation and it makes you think that for the first time ever Florentino Perez is not the most powerful person at that club right now it's Zidane and so maybe he relished that sort of leverage that he's going to have in this situation but you you think that 
Zidane, who we know had incredible success, but it was success with a juggernaut of a team, including, and it shouldn't be understated, that Cristiano Ronaldo. Do you, you think that he would not have taken this if he, was, if he didn't have assurances that come this summer, massive things are going to change? Yeah, but a- as you mentioned, whoever they bring in, it's not going to be Cristiano Ronaldo. So he's still going to be in uncharted waters of trying to win at Real Madrid without Ronaldo. So it's going to be an interesting challenge for him. But certainly they're going to have a better squad next season than they had this season. I mean, the player everybody's looking at now is Eden Hazard right. because Zidane loves him and, and Hazard loves Zidane. And so there's certainly a fit there. You know, we, we in the coming weeks, we'll get into all the ramifications of this. Certainly, Gareth Bale now is out the door because him and Zidane did not have a good relationship. Um, yeah, he's but, already golfing. <laughs> but yeah, so... So yeah. what's success for the rest of this year? And why, and why not wait till the summer to make this move? Yeah, it's interesting. So there were in the aftermath of the loss to Ajax, there were five names uh, bandied about. Uh, Zidane, Jose Mourinho, Massimo Allegri, Mauricio Pochettino, and Jurgen Klopp. Now, three of those five, Allegri, Pochettino, and Klopp, are gainfully employed, so you would have had to wait until the summer. And Florentino Perez seemed dead set on making a move now because it's just he's getting such bad headlines and he needs to change the narrative. And so by doing it now, you limited yourself to Zidane or Mourinho. And so Mourinho, in many ways, is the biggest loser in this whole thing because because if it hadn't been Zidane, it was going to be Mourinho, which would have been an incredible lifeline in his career because no other big club right now is lining up to hire Jose Mourinho. It's frankly preposterous that Real Madrid were even considering it, but it's only because Florentino Perez has this bizarre blind spot for him. And I, I think in his heart of hearts, uh, Florentino Perez would rather have given the job to Mourinho, but all the people around him said, no, nah, you're nuts. If Zidane is willing to take it, you have to go with him instead. So in many ways, I think Mourinho, I think by making the move now, he limited his choices to Zidane and Mourinho and and. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, it's a great question. Why not wait? There's 10 games left in the season, and you're really not playing for much right now. Just play out the string. But, again, Florentino Perez is so concerned with the narrative and headlines and all that, and so he, he felt like he needed to do something not, bold right you, now. You don't think he's concerned with Champions League, right? I mean, like finishing in Champions League. No, nah, there, there's a 10-point gap between Real Madrid and, and fifth. It's really far-fetched to think that if they kept Solari, they were going to screw that up. I mean, so, so no, I, I think they're effectively playing out the string this season. But you do think massive changes, then? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my It's goodness. funny, um, to go back to Mourinho for a second, because uh, I've been thinking about him a lot the last few days. Early in uh, season two of Entourage, there's a, there's a scene where Ari Gold— Are you familiar with that Yes, program? I do. I've watched Entourage. There's a scene where Ari Gold is trying to convey to Vincent Chase how far his star has fallen. Right. And Ari tells him that uh, he got a call from a producer that day offering Vince a part in a made-for-TV movie starring the Olsen twins. And Ari— tells him, of course, I turned it down. And they all share a laugh about how ridiculous the notion is that Vince would ever do that. But then Ari looks at him and says, you know what should scare you about that story? The producer called actually thinking he had a shot. And I thought about that because in the days after Manchester United sacked Mourinho, Benfica called and offered him their job. Now, Mourinho was Portuguese. He started his career at Benfica, so maybe they thought he might want to come full circle. I don't begrudge Benfica for asking, but still, it's Benfica, and Mourinho swatted them away. But if I was Georgia Menes, I would sit Mourinho down and realize, look, you've been damaged. The fact that Benfica thought they had a shot at you right now because Benfica aren't calling Pep Guardiola or Zinedine Zidane. So Mourinho's had to eat a little bit of humble pie here. And boy, Real Madrid would have been, like I said, an incredible lifeline for him to be able to like stick it to all his critics who said, oh, you're, 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 you're done in the big time. Like, well, yeah, Real Madrid came back for me and now that door has been closed. So who the heck knows where he's going to end up? But we, we know where, where Zinedine Zidane oh is going to be. Oh my God. Masi, you cut me deep. And I'll, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. You know who starred in a uh, movie with the Olsen twins? Who's that? That would be me. 
Is that right? Yes. I'll tell you about that story. Uh, and you can look it up. <laughs> True story. True story. So, uh, yeah, when it comes to bottom of the barrel, uh, you're, you're sitting across from it right <laughs> now. Uh, <laughs> but I guess I'm on Jose Mourinho's level. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see how the return of, uh, of the king, return of the great ones, Zinedine Zidane, uh, changes or doesn't change the fortunes of Real Madrid or changes our perception of him because it is pristine right now as to what he is as a manager and that can all come crumbling down very very quickly but we'll uh, it's going to give us plenty of things uh, to talk about i can't wait to see it all right anything else mossy nope case made from david mossy wonderful mossy makes the case all right moving on Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Ask Alexi. Now, for those of you that are uh, running and you're saying, wait, did he just say that he was in a movie with the Olsen twins? Uh, yes, I was. We filmed it in Canada. It was years ago, back in my uh, full uh, hair state. Uh, and you can look it up. It's called Switching Goals. And I'm sure the guys back there are looking it up right now. So it's true. Yeah. Mossy, it's time for Ask Alexi. What do we got this week? First up, at The Real Dan Miles, what are your thoughts on. Frank DeBoer telling Atlanta United fans to lower their expectations. As an Atlanta fan myself, I get what he's saying, but if anything, the last two years have taught us and the rest of MLS to raise our standards. Thoughts? Yeah, this is very, very strange. Uh, it's, it's strange on a number of, for a number of reasons. Uh, we're only a couple of games into the MLS season, and all, already there is hand-wringing and consternation. I look at that as a good thing, okay? Uh, I look at that as progress. I look at that as a reflection on what Atlanta United has done over the last couple of years. The comments after the game from Frank DeBoer, who we know was a very strange hire. It was almost as if the Galaxy and Atlanta, two of the biggest clubs, they got they they took the wrong planes at their changeover in what airport it was. And <laughs> Scalotto should have gone to Atlanta and Frank DeBoer should have gone to LA Galaxy, but it didn't happen like that. So there was always a, 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 a from, the, from the moment this was announced, a, a sideways type of glance from folks. Fair enough though, coming in, and I know Tata's gone, and I know Almiron's gone, but I think there was a recognition that, hey, this is a brand and a team that was built on doing big things, on being big and bold, on spending a lot of money, on consistently spending a lot of money, on, on spending smart money, and ultimately having a expectation and a level of ambition unlike any team, to be quite honest, that we have seen in the past. So with that high, comes higher expectations. And I don't buy that you should temper your uh, your expectations if you are an Atlanta United fan or if you're someone from the outside that, like myself, fully recognizes that Atlanta is must-see television because specifically of what they have done. They are the super club, the club by which all others are judged. And if you're not going to be that, fine. But that's not what we were sold. And Frank, you better figure it out. 
okay? And it looks like there's a good chance that they bomb out of uh, CONCACAF Champions League, which was basically the only thing that Frank could have done to, to do better. And the first two games have not been good. And, you know, I, I said this on Twitter, you know, the results are, what are, 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 are not good. But the fact that there is a recognition that this team, which for my money was one of the most exciting and entertaining teams ever assembled, is, dare I say it, boring. I do not want a boring Atlanta team. And if you're going to win and be boring, okay, you can get away with that for a little bit. But if you're going to be boring and not win, then you got problems right now. And it's Frank DeBoer's problem to figure out, and he better figure it out quickly because the natives are restless. No, it's interesting. The, the context here for DeBoer, you know, we all might look at the situation and be like, oh, it's so ridiculously early. But his last two jobs did not last much longer than this. Uh, DeBoer is a guy who won four straight league titles at Ajax, kind of made himself a hot name. The last two jobs have been a disaster. Inter Milani lasted 85 days and was sacked. And then Crystal Palace, he was sacked after five Premier League matches. And so... Yeah, it's early, but he's looking at it kind of nervous, thinking like, "Uh oh, this isn't going to happen again, is it?" But yeah, I mean, this situation to me was always going to be very problematic because anytime you have a manager coming in, like you said, that there, there's, there's no way to go but down. The only thing from a results standpoint he could have improved upon was the CCL, and looks like Atlanta's sort of off the case there. From an MLS standpoint, there's no way he could improve upon it. And so, as a manager, sort of, you want to kind of change things to put your own stamp on it, do something in terms of the formation, the style of play. You don't want to just walk in the door and say, "Hey, everybody." Just do the exact same thing you did under the last guy. But then if things go wrong, invariably the question becomes, why did you mess with something that was so good? You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So it's always an awkward position managers are in when they're walking the door and following somebody that had great success. And, and, you know, so it's... It's... it's, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful (laughs) that the fans booed the other day. Their first home game after celebrating uh, the the, uh, MLS Cup last year. Their first home game of this season. They tie Cincinnati 1-1, an expansion team. And they looked, once again, they looked boring. And there were boos when they were off the field. And, and you know, the fact that, that Frank Boer, after the game, talks about that the team and Atlanta fans were a little spoiled, to use his words, uh, last season. Uh, the fact that... Um, you know that that he's insinuating that they should have they should lower their expectations. Hell no, Frank. <laughs> Hell no, Atlanta. No, this is what Atlanta United is. This is what they have built themselves upon, and this is what they should be held accountable for. And if you are an Atlanta fan, or like you said, if you're someone from the outside, no, this this doesn't fly. You you have been better. I think you still are better than what we are seeing. And it's up to them on a continual basis to provide the level of entertainment and success that we have become accustomed to over the last couple of years. So get it together, Mr. DeBoer. What's next? Next up, at Drew Pels. What about the U.S. inviting the top Asian and African nations for a tournament next summer? Similar FIFA rankings, similar tournament performances, CONCACAF, competitive games, parody in parentheses, which U.S. fans love, mm-hmm. and a chance to see how good the U.S. men's national team really is. Ooh, interesting. So who are they inviting? Who do they want to date? Uh, uh, so, you know, Asia they, and they, they, they tried to organize a tournament with uh, South America, but Comneball uh, doesn't seem too keen on it, at least in, in the way it was proposed as far as who would be organizing it and the money and all that. We'll see. Maybe that, that tournament can be revived. But but if it doesn't happen and, and U.S. soccer is dead set on organizing some sort of tournament for the men to play in, uh, would you be interested in a tournament where they invited the Asian and African countries to come here and play? It's not as sexy. 
And if I'm the uh, organizer of the event, and if I'm looking to make as much money as I possibly can, the reality is that a South American type of joint uh, tournament will be more attractive to more people and therefore make more money. And I'm not saying that it wouldn't be entertaining and that it wouldn't make money. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just don't think you would have the reaction. Maybe not. Maybe I'm undervaluing the, the teams, but more importantly, undervaluing the market that exists for Asian teams and African teams playing in the United States in a summer tournament. So, you know, you have your, your Ghanas and your Nigerias and your South Koreas and your Japans and stuff like, and stuff like that. You know, I do think that when it comes to the American soccer consumer and public, uh, it's, it's very diverse, but I still think that there is a look and a fascination with, with Europe. I don't think that's crazy to say. And that the, you know, the players having players, because you know, when Brazil comes, it's not just Brazil as Brazil, it's also Brazil with all these players that are playing at the elite super clubs around, uh, around the world. And you could, you could get certainly some of that when it comes to uh, you know, Asia and Africa, but I don't think you're getting that, that pop that you get and that association and therefore that associated value that you would get uh, and that you do get when you're, uh, when you're involving South America. Okay, next up, at XXJCTheRipperXX, where do you rank Buffon on the all-time list now that he may never get a Champions League trophy? Top 5, top 10, top 20? Keep in mind, I want to use this question as an excuse to talk about PSG, so you can answer the question the guy asked, but I sort of want to pivot to something else. Yeah, I felt, I felt bad for him. Um, not, that, not that this was necessarily his best chance to win a Champions League, but... It was a a move with you know a a big move, an interesting move, maybe a strange move to to some, and you kind of wanted to see the guy that we love get his day and get his time. So I mean, I I, I rank him up there. Who else who, who else would be up there? I mean, he does he does he want top twenty in terms of people that haven't won the Champions League? Yeah, I mean. Just in his era, in terms of his peers, there are two guys that have won both the Champions League and the World Cup, Neuer and Casillas. Buffon has won the World Cup, but not the Champions League. Right. Is that enough of a reason for you to rank Casillas and Neuer above Buffon if you're doing your all-time goalkeeper rankings? Dude's won a World Cup, man. I mean, the guy has won a World Cup. So, I, <laughs> I mean, if, if somebody wants to come up and give him grief for the fact that he hasn't won Champions League, you know, he's, he, he puts down his... I'm, I'm thinking this is the, the scene... He's at a, a wonderful little uh, outdoor bar and, and beautiful music is happening and he's sitting there sipping uh, a wonderful Italian wine and he puts down the Italian wine and lights up a cigarette and says, I want a World Cup. And that's all he needs to say. <laughs> now, I mentioned uh, in my Mossy Makes a Case, Real Madrid getting knocked out by Ajax. The other shocking development in the Champions League last week was PSG's capitulation yeah. at home against Manchester United. Uh, I want to talk about what I think that means for PSG, but first of all, you had an amazingly prescient uh, State of the Union last week in which you talked about the ambiguity of the handball right. rule, and then what happened in that game happened. Talk about that for What was your take on that call, Kimpembe, the penalty at the end? You jump, you put your arms out, you turn your back, and once again, it's 
it's buyer beware. You, you know in 2019 what the situation is. And the situation is, as I explained last week, that the risk is there. And all the different interpretations of the rule mean that that risk is not going to change. And so when you as a defender jump and it hits your arm and you jump and you turn your back, you, you're risking that human being in that moment or the human beings upstairs in the VAR saying, yeah, that, 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 uh, that fits my interpretation uh, of the law. So I have, no, I have no sympathy or compassion for anybody that does that, which is why I say in this day and age, you're, you're better off playing with your hands behind your back. Now, if you're PSG, there's no way that game could have come down to that. With all the players United were missing, the lineup they started at midfield with McTominay and Fred and Pereira. United couldn't string three passes together in that game. <laughs> they couldn't create any chances on their own. There wasn't one moment in those 90 minutes where United was on the, on the front foot in that game. All PSG had to do was knock it around for 90 minutes and not do anything stupid at the back, and they would have gotten off that field a ho-hum, nil-nil, one-nil. That's what any proper team would have done in that situation, and they somehow conspired to screw it up by gifting United three goals out of nowhere. That was an unbelievable choke. In, in some ways, it was even worse than the Barcelona one. And again, we come back to this with PSG. I've been thinking about them a lot the last few days, and it's interesting that for a club that's supposedly obsessed with winning the Champions League, they keep hiring managers without any sort of Champions League winning pedigree, whether it's Laurent Blanc or Unai Emery or now Thomas Tuchel. I know it'd be harsh on Tuchel to get rid of him, but I think they have to fundamentally change the dynamic there. They've tried to do it by bringing in winners like Danny Alves and Gigi Buffon on the field. It hasn't worked, so I think it has to come in that manager spot. I was prepared to come in today and urge them to throw crazy money at Zidane and try to convince him to take that job. Obviously, that is not no longer an option. I don't know that Jose Mourinho would be a great fit there. I don't know what the move is. Why, but why wouldn't, if you just said you need somebody with experience <laughs> and somebody who's won, why wouldn't Jose Mourinho be? Yeah, maybe. But I, I guess, I mean, look, larger point is they have to fundamentally change this sort of choker identity dynamic. If, let's say, a Zidane was coaching that team next season in the Champions League, there would be a whole different feel about it. You wouldn't, there wouldn't be the sense of impending doom when they get into a big Champions League game of, Why how are they going to screw this up? I feel like with Zidane, it'd be a whole different vibe. Uh, so I, I feel like I have to defend Jose Mourinho. I feel like you're <laughs> dumping on Jose Mourinho. And it's interesting because I, uh, I did a, uh, a charity the other day and uh, Robbie Earl, uh, who works over at NBC and they do a great job over there, was part of it, Stu Holden and uh, Warren Barton. And, and we were talking about Jose Mourinho and just, you know, the, the way that he has, that has, you know, his vacancy has enabled Ole to come in and completely change, obviously, the fortunes, but also completely change the, the narrative. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I'm, I'm often wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong. Last year, Manchester United finished second. Correct. They sit where right now? Uh, they are in fifth. Okay. So if Ole finishes second or, or third or fourth or whatever, not as high as second, why, why is that better? Just because he smiles more and he doesn't dump <laughs> on the players and uh, he's not uh, petulant when it comes to the, uh, the press or others and stuff like that. It's just they just like his attitude better. It's the United way. Well, obviously, where they were when he took over. I mean, if you if you total up the points, actually, since he took over, they they're right. up because there. Jose Mourinho couldn't have gone gone on a run. It was I was not getting that vibe. Okay, was right. okay. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, and no, I think a lot of it is the personality. Yeah, I mean, but but why wouldn't you? So you wouldn't hire Jose Mourinho if you're PSG? No, 
it's funny. We're running out of people that have won Champions I League. I know. No, you're right. <laughs> yeah, it, the, the round, again, not to go back. The Real Madrid thing is so interesting with Mourinho because I've said this before. I draw a line after the treble with Inter in 2010. There's sort of a before and after in his career. Before that, opposing managers and fans might not like him, but his players loved him. They'd run through a brick wall for him. The fans so of all the clubs he, he was at loved him. And, and the results were like unimpeachable in terms of all the trophies he's won. It's since he went to Madrid that he started feuding with his own players, alienating his own fans, and suddenly the results haven't been that unbelievable to he justify is, all the baggage. I mean, okay, he, he has always been this way, this ornery <laughs> type of person, okay? I, yeah. I just I, I had a I had a whole rant today trying to poke a hole into his hundred points uh, season at Real Madrid, which he never shuts up about. But I'll save it save it for a different day. Wow! Um, but I will say one one on this one bit of good news for uh, PSG. Mbappe gave an interview in the aftermath of that United game and said he was stunned and couldn't believe it. But then he said, matter of fact, like, oh, I'll be back next season. Like, I believe in this club. So that that put some fears to rest. Now all they need is Neymar to say the same thing, and they can. Uh, Run it back, uh, bring the band back together, and give it one more shot again with. All right. Well, to answer Ripper's <laughs> question, uh, yeah, I would put Buffon at the top there. I mean, uh, yeah, I would put him on the top, uh, but I'm I'm sure he's not that worried about it. I mean, I don't think he's going to spend the rest of his life lamenting the fact that he didn't win Champions League because once again, he won. Uh, what's that other tournament called? Yeah, the World, World Cup. Cup. All right, remember to use that hashtag AskAlexi and send us your comments and your questions. And who knows, in the future episodes, maybe Mossy will read yours. All right, moving on. The Back Three. Okay, time for our Back Three. Some big stories and games and moments out there. Mossy, what do we got in our Back Three this week? All right, first up, FIFA are strongly considering moving the 48-team World Cup plan to 2022. It was supposed to commence in 2026, where the field would be expanded from 32 to 48. But Johnny Infantino very much wants to get this done in 2022. Now, there are some logistical issues regarding whether a country the size of Qatar could possibly host that kind of tournament. So it might mean bringing in some of these other Gulf states, too. And so uh, what are your overall thoughts on this? I say you wait until 2026. You are hosting a tournament, uh, a Men's World Cup, in 2022 in Qatar, a country the size of Connecticut. Okay? All right, no problem. Whatever. I mean, I think it's going to be better than people believe, but we shall see. And yet in 2026, you are hosting a Men's World Cup with three of the largest nations in the world, uh, two of them that have hosted World Cups before, uh, and multiple World Cups, uh, if you include women's and men's, and the ability and the infrastructure, more so than probably any World Cup bid, not more, yeah, not probably, definitely, than any World Cup bid to host an expanded 48-team World Cup. So I think that's when you drop the 48-teams uh, World Cup onto society. I, I understand that there is a, a financial, obvious financial part of this, that more teams, more games, more money. Uh, and look, I'm all for more games. The other part of this is, you know, that whole Nobel Peace Prize type of uh, theory when it comes to Johnny Infantino and peace in the Middle East and doing things that are bigger and supersede the actual play on the field and the power that the World Cup can unleash in a positive way on a region and can bring nations together. Uh, if Johnny Infantino believes that having a 48-team World Cup in 2022 in Qatar can help bring that area of the world together, 
I'm all for it. If he truly believes that that's <laughs> what's going to do it, no problem. All right. And if it means hosting it in multiple cities and in multiple countries, that's uh, that's fine. But I mean, <laughs> once again, Qatar, it makes the whole bid process for Qatar and the awarding of this just once again, it shouldn't blow my mind, but it continues to blow my mind in that what was stated and desired and um, and championed back then is completely different now. And so what's the point of bidding on a World Cup anymore and saying these are the restrictions and these are the requirements for a World Cup if it all completely changed? We're not playing a World Cup in 2022 in the summer anymore, all right? And now we're not even going to be playing in the number that was uh, that was stated. We're going to go to 48. It's, it, it's very, very strange. Do I think it gets done in, in terms of the change to 48? Man, I think it's... I, I still say it doesn't change until 2026. And that's a good thing. But they don't listen to me. And listen, uh, the train has left the station. It, the World Cup is going to 48 teams. It's just a question of which World Cup is, is, is going to do it at. Uh, but I will reiterate uh, once again my objection to this whole thing. And it's not because of dilution of quality. The operative number here is not 48, it's 16. The format they're talking about is 16 groups of three, and I just find that to be a completely bizarre format for an international tournament. Uh, I like 32. I like the format we have now. To me, this is a solution in search of a problem. There's no region that feels underrepresented right now. And, you know, we were in Russia last year covering that World Cup. That tournament was great. Did you yep. walk away from that thinking like, yeah, this isn't working. We need no, to no, drastically no. restructure no. the way. So, But uh, if it is 48, you'll accept it, but you still want groups of four is what you're saying. Yeah, I, I'm, I wouldn't dismiss the notion of 48 outright, but it has to be a format that makes sense. And the one they're proposing now doesn't. If they can come back at me with a different format, I'm willing to take a look at it. And yeah, I agree with you. The groups change. of three thing completely changes. Well, it completely changes strategy and the way that you go about going into a tournament and playing in these groups. Uh, all right. So we'll see if that gets done. What's next? All right, it was <laughs> it was an eventful weekend in England. <laughs> to say the uh, least, Let's yes. start with the good, which is the fact that in the Premier League this season, we have a fantastic title race and fantastic top four race. Uh, as far as the title race, both Manchester City and Liverpool held serve. So City are one point ahead with uh, eight games to play for each team. What's your overall thought there? Keep in mind, City are in two other competitions as well. Liverpool are also in the Champions League. But that FA Cup thing is interesting because City are going to have to play, the longer they stay in that competition, they're going to have to play weekend games there, which is going to fudge with their Premier League schedule. So it's not going to be lined up from now until the rest of the season in terms of the games played. Uh, there's going to be instances where Liverpool have played more games and City are going to have to make those game up, games up. So keep in mind, that's a little bit of a wrinkle here in this title race. But what's your overall feeling right now, Manchester City and Liverpool? Well, uh, I was adamant and have been for a long time that ultimately Man uh, Manchester City is going to win this and that um, that Liverpool is going to bottle it. I think that's a, the, the phrase they use. And that was fine until, and I could be wrong here, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Drake has shown up at Man City and is taking pictures with people there. So all is lost if this turns out to be true. And it completely changes the calculation. Uh, Liverpool is definitely winning if this is, uh, if this is true. Or maybe this is the, the moment when Drake's involvement with your professional sports team actually is a positive. But if history is any indication, I don't think that that's, uh, that's going to happen. As far as top four, Tottenham have very much been dragged back into that race. And now it's four teams fighting for two spots. Tottenham, Arsenal, United, and Chelsea 
all just a few points from each other. Do you have any feeling there? Keep in mind, Arsenal and right. Chelsea are still in the Europa League, so they have that path to the Champions sure. League, though Arsenal have have it all to do now this week against Rennes. They have to turn around the 3-1 first leg defeat in France. Uh, but so how do you see that whole top four situation playing out? I still see, yeah, I mean, Arsenal were okay. I mean, right? They got the result that they needed this weekend. I don't see Chelsea. I still don't think ultimately that Manchester United makes top four. So you think the way it is right now, the two North yep. London clubs, Tottenham and Arsenal. I think it, I think it stays like Arsenal. That. One interesting Arsenal note, uh, Monchi, who is a supporting director I know, huh? Love, who was at Sevilla for many years, yeah. uh, was at Roma the past couple of years. He's out there. It, it didn't go well for him at Roma. And now all the talk is he's going to go to Arsenal to reunite with Unai Emery, who right. he worked with at Sevilla. I love Monchi. I've long said I thought he was the best in the business. But he's good in a certain kind of way, taking these second-tier clubs and getting them to punch above their weight by finding these bargains and cleverly maneu- right. maneuvering in the transfer market. Uh, I've, I've said it, it's sort of the, the, the prop Joe philosophy of, of buy for one, sell for two. It's a little wire reference. I don't know if you were a fan of that show. No idea what you're talking about, um, but go on. Right. But I don't know if taking take, going to a big Premier League club is necessarily the most natural fit. I mean, if you're going to win major trophies at Arsenal, you're going to have to spend big to compete with the Man You're not going to outsmart the Man Cities to such a degree that you're going to— It's a different proposition, and it's a different job yeah, when you so, go to a super club. Just yeah. ask Frank DeBoer. And, and by the way, I said the Man Cities. Isn't there a guy on Twitter that hates when we refer in the plural to something that's singular? The the Real Madrids and, and Bayern Munichs of the world. Remember that? Because that, there's only one. Remember that tweet we yeah, had there? So, like, so shout out to that guy. <laughs> that um, guy. <laughs> yeah. So let's get to the bad in England uh, this weekend. So there was a horrible incident in the Birmingham City-Aston Villa game in which a Birmingham City fan ran onto the field and attacked Jack Grealish. Uh, that fan has since been arrested and was sentenced to 14 weeks in jail. Uh, and then, by the way, in the Arsenal-Manchester United game, which, as you mentioned, Arsenal won 2-0, a, an Arsenal fan apparently ran on the field and attacked Chris Smalling. So, you know, England, which used to be the, the country of hooliganism, and they've made so much progress in recent decades, and and, and now sort of the, these incidents have sort of sparked these conversations again about English society and why is it so violent and, and what's going on. And and so uh, what, do you, what do you make of this whole situation? Well, I mean, it's... So how do, how do you solve it? Well, you start to put up more barriers, uh, between the fans and the field. And we know at times, um, both and primarily when it came to safety, especially when it came to England, um, and then, you know, a, a recognition and a need and a, and a desire to kind of have that visual contact be as close as possible in some of these stadiums and certainly some of the new and old stadiums, that, that's desirable. But with that comes risk. And I know people will blame the stewards and the, and the you know the people that are on the sideline that are there to catch it but you know if somebody wants to jump up and run uh it's it's going to be very very hard to stop them without an actual barrier or without a wall that be or a human barrier of stewards going all the way uh, around the field i don't know you know you can punish people and certainly that's going to happen you'll ban them for life they'll get all all that kind of stuff when i was playing it, it never, you know, even, you know, because I, I was around for the Monica, Monica Sellis thing, and I never feared for an attack or anything like that. Now, to be fair, a lot of times I was playing in stadiums that were older and had <laughs> moats and, you know, huge bars and barriers between the fans and the players, or 
older stadiums that are much higher up as opposed to England where your your field level and your and your uh, almost eye level at times with the uh, with the players on the field. I don't know. I don't know what the answer ultimately is if if you have somebody that's crazy enough or drunk and crazy and drunk that wants to get out there on the field other than once again erecting barriers and we will we will lose something if that happens and it'll be it'll be unfortunate but the the response and the outcry and it was really interesting to see because you mentioned the increase in knife attacks when it comes just in general society when it comes to uh, to England and to see people correlate this rise uh, if there is a rise, I don't have all the numbers, but correlate it to what's going on in uh, in the culture. So if this is a cultural thing, then it goes well beyond how you fix it on the actual field. And violence in English football is certainly nothing new. And they've done a, actually a very, very good job over the years of doing the things and closed circuit television and understanding exactly who is coming in and out of, uh, out of their grounds, um, giving, uh, as I said, the, the safety and the opportunity for fans to, if there is a problem, to get out and away and into a safe environment as quickly as possible. All of those things are important. So I don't think that there's an easy answer other than the barriers go back up. Yeah, it happens too often that fans are somehow able to run on the field. Now, 99% of the time, they just want to kind of dance around and make yeah. a fool of themselves or go up to a player and player like take a picture, and an autograph, picture. and like a gesture. So we all kind of laugh off those incidents. Sure. But, you know, all those incidents could turn into trouble if the fan, you know, has like a little knife or something in his pocket that he somehow was able to sneak into the stadium. You never know. So, yeah, you, you got to, you know, like Robbie must have said, that's got to be a safe space for players sure. when they're playing a game. Um, and this guy, by the way, on, on Grelish, and, and it was, thankfully, there was there was no injury to the player, so much so that he was able to get back up, finish the game, and score uh, and score the goal. I mean, it, the, the soccer god said, you deserve a moment for what happened. And this guy, by the way, he attacked him from behind, all right? So not only is he an ass, all right, <laughs> and he's going to be punished, but he's also a coward. Um, not that I want people attacking me from the front if you're on the field. I don't want people attacking at all. But it's even worse that this guy came up from behind where he has no ability to protect himself. And it could have been much, much worse. Frankly, just in general, you know, to go back to Jose Mourinho for a second, when United beat Juventus in Turin in the Champions League, at the final whistle, Mourinho started taunting the Juve fans. And some people criticized him for that. And, and I actually defended Mourinho. He said, you know, you have no idea what they were saying about my family for the last 90 minutes. And Ronaldo actually said the same thing recently when, against Atletico when he gestured at their fans after that first leg. And yeah, I mean, just in general, the fan behavior, even people who don't make it on the field, but the things they say now, and I mean, it's just, I don't know if it's worse now than it was before, but boy, it, I, I don't know, man, you, you you buy a ticket to a game, that's not a license to just say just the most awful things about people's families. And, yeah, but, that, and but you have to, then you have to have to uh, make a decision alcohol. as to what is awful <laughs> and what isn't awful, what is, you know, and police thought yeah and that's all. a hard thing to police you just hope people have the sense to behave in a, in a yeah in a i mean i always manner. was you know you can be a horrible human being and say incredibly disgusting and vile things that i completely disagree with and i always said i, I can't i can react to that in that you know i can but but it's only you know, either me talking back to that person or something like that. It's completely different from a physical perspective if you if you cross that. And 
people will say, well, it's, it's out of bounds no matter what. Yeah, but I, I always looked at it as say what you want and you will, st- you know, when this game is over, uh, you will still be an asshole. <laughs> but if you ever were to, you know, violate and cross that plane and do something physical, that's a whole nother level. And then uh, you deserve everything that's coming to you. Anything else? Okay, we'll end on this. Christian Pulisic, let's talk both present and future with him. Let's start with the present. This past weekend, he came off the bench. Dortmund were in danger of another terrible result. They were drawing Stuttgart 1-1 late at, at home. He Pulisic came on. He played a part in the go-ahead goal by Alcacer and then scored uh, the third one. So Dortmund win 3-1. In terms of the Bundesliga, boy, it's his first contribution in months, it feels like. He's been totally sort of out of the picture there as far as the Bundesliga. He's been playing German Cup and Champions League. Uh, but it got a lot of people thinking Dortmund really need a spark right now. This title race is really trending in the wrong direction. And is is Pulisic somebody that maybe Lucien Favre needs to play more and start him in some games, and he might be able to be the player to provide them that spark? How do, how do you see well, that? No, I mean, if if he wasn't his cup of tea, why suddenly now should he be his cup of tea? He hasn't changed. He's the same player that he always was. Now, as you mentioned, Borussia Dortmund, I think, is in not free fall, but they are in real problems I think mentally, as as a team, uh, and Bayern Munich knows it, and they are licking their chops. And I think it's, you know, I think ultimately it's going to be very difficult for Borussia Dortmund to maintain it with or without Christian Pulisic. So I don't think that, I don't think he's the answer. I think it's a, I I think that summer cannot come soon enough for Christian Pulisic. Not that he is miserable or anything like that, but. You know, this this what this is what comes with signing these pre-contracts is that you're in this strange world, and and he's looking at what's happening at Chelsea, and I, I uh, you know we've talked about this before. I think it's a, a much, I think I don't think it's as negative as it might be to some that are that are trying to put themselves in his his shoes. I think there's opportunity there for Christian Pulisic uh, going forward, but. It just needs to get to the summer and get this move done and be where he is going to play for the foreseeable future and start to, as we've talked about before, live up to that price tag and live up to that hype in a Chelsea situation that's going to be difficult, but I, but I also think is going to be ripe for opportunity for a young player like him and a good player like him. Well, and to that point, some, some big news in the last uh, couple of days. So Chelsea, as we mentioned, got hit with a transfer ban, uh, which was going to be uh, two transfer windows. And they assumed they were going to be able to appeal that ban. And even if they couldn't get it reduced, that the, the ban would be sort of postponed until after the appeal is heard. But they appealed to FIFA and FIFA said, no, we'll listen to your appeal. But in the meantime, the ban still stands. And FIFA gave no indication of how long it's going to take them to rule on the appeal. And that's trouble for Chelsea because they knew they, they had no chance to get it reduced through FIFA. But they just want to get the FIFA appeal out of the way so they can then appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And they would have been almost definitely like the president would tell you they would have almost definitely suspended the ban and then there's even a chance it could have been reduced so this ended up being sort of the worst case scenario here and puts him in a real holding pattern for this summer because they they were expecting to have the ban suspended and be able to go this summer and still do a bunch of things in preparation for the eventual ban and so but to spin it in terms of Pulisic let's say hypothetically they're not able to do anything this summer 
it mostly helps them because they're not going to be able to bring in any more players to compete for playing time with him. But there's also the element of they might be less uh, willing to sell some of their current players because they know they're not going to be able to replace them. Yeah. Now, if, if Hazard wants the, to go, he'll go. He, he has enough juice to kind of force his way out of there. But, you know, guys like Hudson-Odoi and William that people thought maybe might be out the door and that might be op- might open up even more chances for Pulisic. But like I said, I, I think this is if just strictly in terms of Christian Pulisic getting playing time next season. If Chelsea are under this ban this summer and, and aren't able to do anything, I think it mostly helps them. I think it, you know, he then walks in as clearly their biggest signing for next season and they're one the one guy that could sort of bring something different to the table from what they had because it's going to be the same squad otherwise. And so, you know, that that's a big element. I, I think there are bright days ahead for Christian Pulisic. Uh, maybe not in terms of playing a part or a, a big part in what's happening at Borussia Dortmund as they go down to the summer. But I do think that there, like you said, are going to be some really interesting and strange opportunities just because of the way this has all come down uh, for him going forward. And it will it will mean that uh, I will want to watch it that much more. Yeah, even if they're under this ban, they're able to recall players they have on loan. On loan, right. Which Pulisic technically right now a is a Chelsea player on loan with Dortmund. They're uh, notorious for having yes, lots of Yes, and Chelsea, like every other player in the world is on loan from Chelsea. And so I'm sure they can mine that, and there's there's got to be some that are that are doing well that they think they could bring back and potentially do well for Chelsea. So th- that is how they would be able to, I guess, improve the squad beyond having signed Pulisic. So Will he have to- a new coach when he arrives? You know... Uh, that that sense of like dead man walking has dissipated just a bit. Ironically, the turning point for Saudi was the City game. Once everybody got over the fear of the Kepa incident, they actually looked at it and said, you know what, he did a good job that day. He showed some tactical flexibility and he figured out a way to stymie Manchester City for 120 minutes. And then they ripped off some wins after that. They had a bad result this weekend against Wolves. But still, overall, they... they well, you just threw that out there. Oh, but, you know, they had well, a bad well, result against Wolves and they needed Eden Hazard at the last minute to do yeah. his magic, who but, we know but, there's a good chance isn't going to be there next yeah, year. No, no, so. All, all, all and that's would, not coaching. That's saying, hey, magician, all it go would do take, a trick. Yeah, I agree. All, all it would take is another another loss or two, and he'd be right back to where he was. But certainly there was a sense where, I mean, we were checking our phones like any day now he's going. That's like dissipated just a bit. He's righted the ship just enough that maybe he can stay until the end of the season. Then either if they finish top four or win the Europa League, there would be a case to be made to perhaps keep him. So I, I was I, I not long ago, I was at 100% he's gone. And now it's something less than that. I've at least seen some signs that he, he might be able so to survive. So it's obvious that. that Jose Mourinho for the third time is coming back <laughs> to Chelsea. <laughs> See, it all, it's all a big circle. It always comes back to Jose. By the way, I don't want to accuse uh, our producer Alex Dowd of having Chelsea blinders on, but how many podcasts in a row is this where Chelsea has been like a standalone back three topic? I mean, it's if it's he had his like way, a, the State of the Union would be about Chelsea. My uh, it, my it, one big thing, which is about to come up, would be about. It, it's Chelsea. almost like a reserved spot now. Like as I'm going there, and now to the Chelsea topic <laughs> of the week, and like we get into it. Like. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Masi, there for our back three? No. All right. So we do come to the end of our show and our one big thing that we do at the end of the pod. Uh, As as you heard in our State of the Union, we talked about this fascinating uh, moment and continued months ahead for the United States women's national team. They are are not only the number one team in the world and defending World Cup champs, but they are also a team that continues to generate... Uh, incredible content for us and continues to make things interesting. And it's because of the 
incredible body of work that they have that extends beyond this generation of players. It's multiple generation that have recognized the power as we talked about, uh, the opportunity, um, and ultimately uh, the responsibility. And, you know, we can be uh, critical at times uh, and we can be cynical at times about people's motives. And, you know, while I do believe that ultimately this is about business and this is about money. Uh, as I said earlier, there is a recognition and a respect uh, and a responsibility that this group of women and an extended group of women feel towards, uh, towards their gender, towards their sport, towards their country, and towards uh, their culture. And time and time again, when these stands are made, People will have opinions on different sides, and people will agree, and people will disagree, but they are furthering the discussion. They are furthering when it comes to uh, equality. Um, they are doing things that change the way that we think about our sport, uh, about our teams, about our players, and ultimately about our country and ourselves. And each and every time that that happens, whether I always agree or disagree or I have you know a an opinion about this and this I have I retain and still retain an incredible respect for the things that they do on the field and certainly the things that they continue to do off the field and while for others it might be a distraction and it might be a problem it seems that it has become part and parcel of being a women's national team player for the United States that you are going to lead and you are going to be involved in situations that go well and beyond what you actually do uh, on the field. And either you accept that responsibility or you don't. And thankfully, not this, this generation, but multiple generations have accepted that responsibility. And in doing so, I think they have made, as I said, the sport and ultimately our country better. It'll be interesting to see how this lawsuit plays out. I do hope that ultimately it gets settled and that the women uh, get what they want. And as I said, uh, even more. And I do think that that is how ultimately this, uh, this will all shape out so that they can go about continuing to do the great work on the field, including this summer. And I can't wait uh, for the World Cup this summer to come so we can see what this uh, women's national team under Jill Ellis has in store for us and if they can defend their, uh, uh, their title. But defending their title or not, uh, I guarantee that this will, be not, this will not be the last time that we see our women's national team standing up for what they believe in. And ultimately, that's the most American thing uh, out there. And so while we can agree and disagree on different things, I think there's an ultimate um, and recognized pride that we take in what they do. Uh, onward and upward when it comes to our women's national team and their endeavors both on uh, and off the field. All right, Mossy, anything else before we head off? Nope. All right, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again uh, next week. I will be on the road next week, so I'll be coming to you from wherever I am. Where am I going to be? I think I'll be in New York City, so I can't wait to see... Uh, the uh, NYCFC. I'm doing NYCFC and LAFC uh, this weekend. So I'll be in, um, what's the name of that stadium that they uh, play in there? Yankee Stadium over there. I'll be in Yankee Stadium to see the Pigeons play. And I always uh, love my trips to New York, but uh, I'll be on the road and I will be uh, doing the show from the road. And so um, you won't see any dip in quality when it comes to content, maybe a little 
dip in quality when it comes to audio, but just only a small dip. All right, so tune in next week uh, for that. We thank you for listening, and as always, size the day. <laughs>